Kowalski. The sun is down, the streetlights are on, and you're listening to Largely the Truth with Brennan Store. To all you restless sleepers and midnight creepers, bleary-eyed truckers and the graveyard shift, this is Brennan Store, and you're listening to Largely the Truth. Whether you're staring at a screen or the lines on the road, all is well, and for the next little while it's going to stay that way. Because I'm here, you're there, and together, we're going to explore the night. Welcome back to Largely the Truth. I am your host, Brennan Store, and this is the internet's favorite podcast. The internet just doesn't know it yet. It is mid-December, folks, and I hope this finds you well. I myself am doing great. This is my final Largely the Truth of 2021. I'm taking a month off. After this episode, I'll be back in mid-January 2022 with some uh, fabulous guests and uh, more of the conversations, which you've come to love and and which I honestly have come to love too. In the 19 episodes I've done of this show so far, I've had the privilege of meeting some truly fascinating people, some truly talented people. And frankly, the timing of my break couldn't be any better because my guest on this episode is someone who is both those things. That guest is Andrea Janes. She is the founder of Burrows of the Dead, New York City's best ghost tour company. And Andrea was kind enough to sit down with me for an hour to talk about, well, we start with Burrows of the Dead and the history of New York, but really the conversation heads in so many great directions that I I won't even try to sum it up here. But I will say that uh, this is one of the best conversations we've had so far on the show, and I very much enjoyed it. Before we get there, of course, if you want an ad-free feed, head on over to patreon.com slash largely the truth. Again, that's patreon.com slash largely the truth. You'll get ad-free episodes. And during this hiatus, because you won't be getting regular episodes, my subscribers will be getting a special treat. And if you've been listening for a while, of course, you know that Largely the Truth started its life as a weekly music show on 92.5 Stoke FM, showcasing the best and brightest in independent music from around the world. Well, since I'm not going to be having interviews for the next four weeks, I will instead be producing at least two episodes of the classic format, Largely the Truth. So those will be hour-long music shows where I showcase some of the best and brightest from the last 30 days of independent music. So if you want in on that action, head on over to patreon.com slash largely the truth. And again, for $2 a month, you get access to ad-free episodes of my entire catalog so far, and you get the bonus music episodes as they come out during the month-long hiatus. Also, of course, you get access to bonus content when available. Also, if you have any questions about the show or comments about the show, come find me on the Repod app. Just search for Largely the Truth with Brennan Store, and you can comment. I will respond. I'm very active on there, and I love hearing from you guys. So again, that's the Repod app. Search for Largely the Truth with Brennan Store. Finally, I'll be giving a talk on the Wisdom app on Monday, December 20th at 1 p.m. West Coast time. And I'll be talking about what it's like to launch a new podcast, how to keep going when you doubt yourself, and really just some of the uh, basic questions I think someone starting a new show needs to ask. And it's not going to be what kind of microphone to get. (laughs) There are a lot more fundamental questions you need to explore before you get that far. And I'll be talking about that again on the Wisdom app, 1 p.m., Monday, December 20th. Search for me on there as Largely the Truth. 
And if you don't want to join live, that talk will be replayable. And I will let you know on future episodes when and where to find that. All right. With all the salesmanship out of the way, it's time to sit back, relax, and reach out to Andrea Janes, founder of Burrows of the Dead. We should pass over all biographies of the good and the great while we search carefully the slight records of wretches who died in prison, in bedlam, or upon the gallows. These words, written by Edgar Allan Poe in 1849, are as true today as they were then. If you want to know somewhere, you need to look in the places that scare you, and my guest tonight isn't someone who scares easy. Andrea Janes is not only an author, historian, and lecturer, she is the founder of New York City's best-reviewed ghost tour company, Burrows of the Dead. Andrea, welcome to Largely the Truth. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. As I was saying off air, you know, I heard your talk about dark tourism for the Miskatonic Institute, and I thought I need to have a chat with this person, and you were good enough to respond, so I, I appreciate it. So I have to know, before we really get going, how does a Canadian come to create New York City's best ghost tour company? Yeah, well, isn't it always the outsider who takes the most interest in an area, you know, That's a whether good point. you're a tourist or a visitor or an immigrant, right? And it's, it's often the immigrants that have the most familiarity with, you know, we're the ones that have to pass tests to live here. We have to study booklets to live here. So, um, <laughs> you know, we, we take an interest, I think, in a different way. Uh, we haven't been marinating in this stuff all our lives. So it's new and fascinating to us. And when I moved to New York City in 2003, I was overwhelmed, blown away, completely floored with the scope, the scale, the magnificence of this city. I mean, it was unbelievable to me. And I never got tired of learning things about it. And I became one of those people that when you came to visit me, I was just like, I went into tour guide mode right away. <laughs> and I think a lot of New Yorkers do that. I think it's natural. Anybody does that when they're hosting a friend from outside their hometown. But there's another layer of when you're a New Yorker, you're like, because my hometown is New York and it's <laughs> kind of insane. And slowly, 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 as I went through phase one of like New York 101, basic facts, and I wanted to search more deeply and find things that were a little off the beaten path. And the footnotes became more interesting to me. And, you know, on the other track, the parallel track of my life is that I write ghost stories. And all of a sudden, I was just like, wow, you know, what has some pretty interesting ghost stories is, is this town. And all of a sudden, those tracks just converged. And then there I was. I found myself suddenly emailing uh, a ghost tour company in 2011 saying, hey, I got my tour guide's license and I'm looking for a job. I currently do food tours. And I find myself in Washington Square Park talking about potter's fields and public hangings instead of dosas <laughs> and pizzas. And I think I should be a ghost tour guide. Do you have any jobs for me? And... Sure enough, they're like, yeah, we got an opening. Come tell us a ghost story. Let's see how you do. And uh, I remember my first tour of the West Village. I gave this like 90-minute spiel, got up in front of a group of 25 people, just went off. And at the end, they all clapped. And I was like, hey, I'm good at this. This is fun. <laughs> I like this. And that was it. And two years later, I founded Burrows of the Dead because, again, I was like, oh, man, I got to get beyond the script. There's so many errors and there's so much more to research. 
And that's not the way it happened, but this is very interesting. And also, do you know about the Titanic? And so do you know about Christmas ghosts? And hey, Edgar Allan Poe. And so all of a sudden I was like, okay, that, I've just got to do my own thing. This is nuts. I'm twisting all the tours and the customers are not getting what they signed up for. Right. And uh, so I had, to, I had to start my own company. That is very cool. And of course, I, I stole the Poe quote uh, from the top of the show uh, directly from your website. And I, I love how that has sort of informed your approach to the tour business. You sort of oh, that's okay. I stole it from a blog called Strange Company, uh, written by this really <laughs> intelligent woman who also had a blog called The World of Poe. And um, we both borrowed it from Poe's marginalia. So steal away. <laughs> Perfect. I love how that has informed your, your tour business because I'm, I'm very much uh, similar in that I appreciate the darkness of a place and the stories which are maybe just, just below the surface. That always seems to me to be, to be much more interesting. And obviously, your, your customers are, are finding the same. Absolutely. I mean, we have this very um, vague idea of history because so much has been withheld from us. So much has actively been withheld or passively been withheld from us. And I think now we're in a historical moment and we've been leading towards this moment for the last decade or so. Like, I can feel it. I can see it. People are questing, people are searching, and we look through the dark corners of history and the footnotes and the dirty laundry of history because we know that's where, you know, the, these truths that are alighted, we know that's where they really hide. And and so, I mean, I, I agree with you completely and and Poe's sentiment about, you know, we should look at the the wretches who died upon the gallows or in Bedlam. Like, these are these are the actual people of history that we need to be looking at, not the, the men in the statues. We know now the men in the statues also have their dark side too. So, you know, this is just like, uh, I think this is part of a larger movement where everybody is reexamining history. And I know in academia, like the concept of history below, history from below has been a thing for like the last two decades. And now I think in popular and social history that's coming out, so, you know, when we started doing our Lower Manhattan tour about a decade ago, we named it Forgotten Dark Histories of Lower Manhattan because we were just like, these are really overlooked. No one really talks about like Keith's War. They talk about New Amsterdam, but they don't talk about this one part of it. And we talk about Alexander Hamilton, but we maybe don't talk about his role in an infamous murder trial where a woman named Elma Sands was murdered and it was uh, the nation's first recorded murder trial or, you know, the doctor's riot. We don't talk about that, how, um, you know, graves in lower Manhattan were desecrated. And so like there's, this is, it gives us a whole different viewpoint of colonial and early American history. And I think for one, it's, it's really fascinating. I just found something out today that I think is a really good example of how our history has really big gaps in it. Oh, so, um, Today, I was speaking with a woman who works at Francis Tavern Museum, and Francis Tavern is a museum dedicated to uh, colonial and revolutionary era New York City history, 18th century history. And I was talking about a woman named Anna Gardy. I came to Anna Gardy because there's a snippet on the museum's website about her, and she was murdered when the um, building was a boarding house in the 19th century. She was murdered by her husband. And so, of course, when I'm doing my dark history tour, my ghost tour, I'm always looking for those those very um, dramatic tales to tell. And so I start talking about Anna Gardy, and it comes out as I'm speaking to the woman that works at the museum that Anna Gardy was a famous ballerina. She was oh. a famous dancer with her own style. She was really renowned. Everybody knew who she was. 
And she was also a Haitian refugee who came to New York City in 1798 with her husband fleeing the Haitian Revolution in the aftermath of the revolution where, you know, the world was just so chaotic in Haiti. Um, and there was so much upheaval of a couple hundred immigrants or refugees, I guess, came to New York City. And some settled there and Anna Gardy settled there. And she was hugely influential in the world of American dance. And so she's like, all of a sudden, this person who I knew as a name in passing as a murder victim, all of a sudden, she has this whole history and this whole story and this context and this incredible connection to a part of history that I don't think a lot of Americans read about and talk about. I don't think a lot of people know very much about the Haitian Revolution. And people don't know about, you know, this community of refugees who settled in New York City. And I certainly didn't know about her influential status in the world of American dance. Maybe I would if I was a ballerina, but I didn't. So I think the history that we talk about on our tours is a really amazing gateway for people. They come because it's like, oh, cool, dark history, ghost tour, fun. And they leave and they're like, whoa, that was insane. I just discovered so much. And that's how I felt today. And I couldn't believe the amazing story of Anna Gardy, and I wanted to know so much more about her. And I was talking with the woman at the museum, and we were like, isn't it crazy how people think, and I mean, people in New York City, this is a very rich cultural center for Black culture, but Black history here has been woefully underrepresented. Sure. And people don't even talk about Black history and the narrative of New York City history until like the Harlem Renaissance. And it's like, what about the other four centuries? You know, and it's only now that people are starting to talk about it. And it's like, guys, there's so much more to this story. And it's just been so lost and so overlooked. So, you know, to come to a person like Anna Gardy and to discover her and to discover her story, like, this is exactly why we take Poe's quote to heart. And we're like, let's, let's discover these people because it's crazy how they've been forgotten. And it's crazy how so many people have just been swept under the rug. And all due respect to Hamilton and Washington, like it's time to stop talking about them. <laughs> I want to talk about Alma Sands, the girl who was stuffed in a well. Let's talk about her. What was her story? I want to know about her. So as a historian, then, is there much left in terms of records of these people because, uh, who are sort of outside the scope of what we'll say, you know, traditional academia considers history? Well, these are the slight records that Poe refers to, right? Right. There's not going to be volumes um, of recorded history about them, but there will be some primary source material for Anna Gardy. There would be handbills of her performances, maybe. Oh, There's okay. one academic paper, literally just one academic paper on Jay's door, and then a couple of handbills. Wow. And uh, one woman at a museum working very doggedly, and one tour guide over here also kind of following up on that. So, you know, there, there are slight records. In the case of Alma Sands, who, you know, this trial that I refer to is the murder trial of uh, Levi Weeks. He murdered Alma Sands, and then his trial was the first recorded trial in American history, the first one where minutes were taken. And so we have a great deal of recorded evidence for that, but it's all sort of from the viewpoint of the judge and the jury and the lawyers and, and Levi Weeks. Like Alma Sands, she doesn't have a voice because she's deceased, so we can only piece together slight little bits of evidence for her and what she was really like and what kind of person she really was. But yeah, the, the records are, are very slim and it's, it's a kind of a fragile sort of puzzle to piece together. You know, we don't, we don't have great volumes written about them, but you'll find them alluded to in other people's diaries, letters, their newspaper articles. I mean, the records are there. They just need someone who's inclined to do the work to find them. 
I think so. Yeah. And, you know, I, I would say to all the listeners out there, I'm a tour guide and I'm a writer. So I don't have the tools of the professional historian. That's not what I went to school for. I don't really know how to research something properly. Right. I have difficulty with like academic databases and access and records. New York City is pretty accommodating. Like you can go to the, the Hall of Records, you can go to the New York Public Library, and there's tons of archivists and historians and librarians here to help me. So, you know, I, I definitely give a kind of um, pop culture version of history. I give like a an amateur version of history in the sense of like someone who loves something but doesn't do it professionally. So, you know, I'm not an accredited historian by any means. I'm a tour guide and I'm a, I'm a writer and I, I try and do the best with the tools I have. But if it if it ever came to a very serious project, like writing an actual biography of somebody, you know, I would call on the assistance of the vast army of New Yorkers who are smarter than me and better educated than <laughs> me and who are trained to do these kinds of things. So I'm always a little bit reluctant to refer to myself as a historian because I'm sure. technically not. Right. And I mean, I think somebody with passion and enthusiasm and determination and patience can go a long way. Um, an example is like one of my tour guides who she, like me, is a writer and a tour guide. And she wrote a book about a man called Mortimer Thompson. And the book is called Mortimer and the Witches and it's coming out next year. And she happened to get the book uh, accepted for publication by a university press. So she had to go through very rigorous protocols, including peer review. And I mean, she did it. She went on research trips. She went into archives, you know, with some assistance from the archivists. She taught herself those things and, and learned the tools and, and made it happen and wrote this book. Her name is Marie Carter. And again, the book is Mortimer and the Witches. So she, and that was an idea that she actually came up with while researching a Burroughs of the Dead tour. She came across this figure, this person, and she was like, wow, what an incredible person. I can't believe there's no biography written about him. And then like she went during the pandemic when we weren't giving tours and like did it, wrote the book. So you can certainly teach yourself those tools. I think of myself as kind of a synthesizer of information. And I think that's also a skill to be able to, to take the work that other people have done and synthesize it and present it in a way that I think makes it accessible and fun and approachable. So I'm not a patient person. I'm not a diligent person. <laughs> I don't have those tools, right. but I know how to find people who do and to pay them to work for me. <laughs> um, I will hire a good researcher and be very grateful that they're the ones scrolling through old newspaper archives and I will happily compensate them for that. <laughs> um, you know, it's, I recognize where my, my flaws are and I'm, I'm so excited when I meet someone who kind of fills in those gaps um, and I love to work with teams of people who are better researchers than I am. And then I feel like I can I can weave together something that's really exciting for the public um, because that's what the the tour guide does. You know, you're your public interfacing person. So you maybe benefit from not being a historian because you don't really get bogged down in details. Right. You give people the really juicy, good narrative, and then you're like, you want to know more details and very accurate little fiddly things. I've given you the basics here. So you go and you read this book by this Harvard historian who will give you all the like footnoted stuff. My tours are accurate, but like they're not going to be as super detailed because we have 10 minutes max to maybe talk about something that's very complex. And, and I'm just like, I'm, I'm giving you the beginning here and the rest is up to you if you want to follow up on it. 
you've said in past interviews that one of the things that interests you is the concept of worlds within worlds. And it seems like New York is uniquely suited for, for that kind of thing. It seems like there, Absolutely. there is so much complexity to that city that you know, you're not going to run, run short of subcultures to explore and, and really history to unearth. You know, I, I was looking at um, Gotham, uh, History of New York to 1898 by Edwin Burroughs and Mike Wallace. And I mean, mm-hmm. that's a brick. And it, it, mm-hmm. it still, I have to imagine, can't cover everything. Right. Yeah. And that's exactly the, when I talk about the footnotes of history, I sometimes am literally thinking of the Burroughs and Wallace footnotes because, for example, the Slave Rebellion of 1712, one of their footnotes casually mentions as kind of like a throwaway thing that somebody was burned alive at the stake in what is now City Hall Park. Oh. And then it just kind of goes on. And I'm like, I'm sorry, did you say somebody was burned alive at the stake (laughs) in New York City? Some footnote. Like, Yeah, I'm like, that's quite a bombshell to drop in a footnote. I'm like, I would like to explore what the societal context was that allowed that to happen, uh, how people reacted to it, how that was received, how on earth a human being was burnt alive at the stake in what is now City Hall Park. I'm sorry, let's talk about this now. So yeah, the the worlds within worlds, um, sometimes literal material worlds, like actual hidden burial grounds that are all over Manhattan. Really? Oh, yeah. I had, a, I had a really funny customer on my tour who had the most apt and hilarious comparison. I was talking about how Trinity Church, which is a really small church in lower Manhattan, the acreage is really tiny. It's like postage stamp size graveyard, but it has like 20, 30,000 bodies under it at least. And because what they would do is they would bury them in layers and they would like squash them down to put more oh, bodies shoot. on top and sometimes use quicklime to dissolve the corpses. And in this way, they packed the thousands of bodies underneath a really small um, square acreage. Wow. And the customer on my tour was like, oh, they were jammed down like layers of cake in a trifle. <laughs> and I was like, I will never get that image out of my head. And that's why I like working with the public, because I'm like, God, I love that you just said that. That's amazing. And then you have like the metaphorical world, you know, <sighs> like the, the secret world of occultists in Greenwich Village in the 1950s. Like, I don't know, you have all these little hidden worlds. And I'm looking right now at a a book on my shelf called Out of This World by Helen Morden Erskine, which is about uh, recluses in uh, New York City. And I think it dates from about 1950 as well. And um, I can look at the look at the date. But Out of This World is about recluses like the Collier brothers or the last remaining um, Stuyvesant, uh, going back to the Dutch director general, his last descendant to Gertrude Treadwell, who is a reclusive woman who lived at what is now the Merchant's House Museum. And she just has all these different chapters about oddballs and recluses in New York City. And I'm like, you know, the idea of worlds within worlds and then people who exist entirely outside of the real world. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. And you have all these like, the thing with New York is you can make so many connections and you can make these connections and they're like a, a web and the threads just go throughout different buildings and different stories and different people until you imagine this whole invisible web of strands all over the city and you kind of start to see it you can you can visualize it and you can and see a strand from i don't know the woolworth building to the plaza hotel to you know all of a sudden you have this imaginary framework of a non-existent universe 
over a city that happens to be inherently interesting in and of itself in the day to day. Like the quotidian in New York City is still fascinating. So when you add these invisible worlds on top, it's kind of like mind blowing <laughs> a little bit. It really is. And what I find interesting about that is that we live increasingly, I think, in a world where we are um, stratified by class. And to be able to see those, those invisible threads and understand that the, you know, say, you know, Park Avenue is not all that far from the, the rough and tumble parts of the city, if you start really looking at how they're connected. I think that's something we just don't think about. We, we tend to think, again, you know, this, the poor are separate from the wealthy and so on and so forth. But these things are often not, not that far apart. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I never, I never thought of it like that. Here, you know, in New York, the proximity of rich and poor, like it's, it's so cheek by jowl. Um, I don't know, like you're always kind of aware of that contrast. Oh, okay. I'm just looking up the um, copyright of this book, Out of This World, which I got from the library and it has a sticker on it that says storage. I'm that person that makes librarians go into storage. <laughs> um, 1953, and it's dedicated to the Collier Brothers. Oh, wow. Oh, and Hetty Green's daughter is one of the, um, one of the, I guess, characters in this book. I mean, she's a real person. Sylvia Green is a real person, was a real person. Uh, but she was the daughter of Hetty Green, the first uh, female, well, not the first female stockbroker in New York City, but one of the most famous uh, female stockbrokers in New York City. One of the first was uh, Victoria Woodhull, who has her own really bizarre story. I don't know if you want to go into details about her. Sure, but... why not? <laughs> I, I... Victoria Woodhull, was, yeah, she was uh, like a whole podcast unto herself. But, you know, she was from, I think she was from Homer, Ohio. She was raised in rural Ohio. She grew up on the medicine show circuit. And her father was like a medicine show charlatan who claimed that he could cure cancer. And he was indicted for manslaughter at one point uh, when he failed to do so. I mean, it's just, it, her life was insane. She came to New York. She became a stockbroker. Her sister had an affair with Cornelius Vanderbilt. She ran for president at one wow. point. Yeah, she was born in Homer, Ohio. And this is, you know, it's interesting. I'm still mulling over your comments about the uh, stratification of society and how we are closer than we think. I'm still, that's still simmering on my back burner because I, I feel like I want to speak to that a little more intelligently. But um, just noting that Victoria Woodhull comes from rural Ohio, I think one thing that people do is assume New York City is more interesting than another place just because it's so big and vast and everything and so central to our mythology. But I feel that one takeaway, if you're listening to this show and you don't live in New York and you're like, huh, okay. One takeaway that I like to kind of remind myself and everybody else of is like your town, wherever you are right now is just as interesting because you probably have an old dance hall down by the river that burnt down in the 1940s. Or you have someone insane who was born there and you don't even know about it, a medicine showman's daughter. Like, you know what I mean? Every place in America has these histories and there's no boring place in America. There's no dull place. There's no dull suburbia, no dull Midwestern town. Everywhere is interesting. You just need to take the time to unearth those slight records because New York doesn't have a monopoly on being interesting. It, it just has more everything. Right. It's just more, that's all. There's a, do you know that movie, Meet Me in St. Louis? I do not. Oh, it's so good. It's like this great Judy Garland movie. 
And one of the main plot points in the movie is that the father's job is going to transfer him to New York. And the whole family is up in arms. They're like, no, we don't want to move there. We want to stay in St. Louis. Because it's just on the eve of the, uh, the World's Fair. Oh, okay. Yeah, they want to stay. And it's like 1904 in the movie. And um, <laughs> the dad in the movie decides to stay. And he's like, New York said he doesn't have the monopoly on opportunity. <laughs> and I always think of that. We got it right here in St. Louis. And I think that's true. I think everywhere is, is fascinating. And, you know, history didn't start 400 years ago either. You know, there's sometimes I, I read these like uh, ghost tour companies and their descriptions online. And I always grind my teeth a little because they're like, New York City's history is very old. It's 400 years old. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's much older than that. People have lived here for thousands of years. Come on. Come on, you guys. <laughs> so, yeah. I guess it speaks to the, the larger question of history, right? I mean, history, mm-hmm. history is, or what we consider history and what is taught is really just what we've decided is important. Exactly. And if you expand that lens, you can see that there's, there's so much more happening. And, and it's, history is really just what we've chosen to remember. And it's, it's the mm-hmm. same with, with, with towns, with cities. I know uh, myself, I, I ended up writing a book of ghost stories uh, from my hometown. I'm from a small mountain town of about 7,500 people. And I discovered in this place, which I thought I knew everything about, history that I had absolutely no idea existed. And, and most of the people who live there didn't. And that's a town that is smaller than Bill Gates' backyard. <laughs> if you go anywhere of, of, of consequence, odds are, you know, it doesn't take much. And sometimes I think it's surprisingly easy to get yourself in trouble. Uh, if you, if, when you start looking, because I know here in Victoria, I live on Vancouver Island. Uh, <laughs> there's this great story, which happened to one of my friends and I'll just give you the brief version, but we were walking past a, a business one day. It was called a uh, how bow fire safety. And we, it, we look in the, in the window and there was a small fire extinguisher in the left corner of the window, a, uh, stop sign in the right corner of the window. And then at the back was an enormous glass wall with a dragon etched into it. Well, yeah, there's something you don't see every no. day. <laughs> and my friend who is far bolder than I, she actually went in one day and she said, uh, hi to the young man behind the counter with enormous arms with snake tattoos on them and said, I'm looking for fire safety equipment. And he said, oh, we're out right now. You should go. And <laughs> that place has never sold fire safety equipment in its life. Uh, but you know, yeah, and, and as I say, it just takes looking a little bit closer to find hidden depths all around us. But as I say, sometimes, you know, th- those dark corners harbor, uh, harbor more than stories. Okay, two things. One, I'm buying your book immediately. <laughs> two, <laughs> two, can I talk about, like, the Canadian Gothic for Hell a yeah, minute? you talk about whatever you want. Okay, so maybe this is a side effect of having been in exile for two decades. Like when I first moved to New York, I was all like, rah, rah, New York, most interesting place in the world. Lately, and it could also be a side effect of my pandemic, like literal exile, not being able to go home across the border for over a year. All of a sudden, I find myself longing to go back to Canada. Not in the sense I want to move my whole family back there, but in that I want to explore right. Canada much more. I want to explore their paranormal and unexplained history. I want to talk about how there's like an essential weirdness to Canada. Like you've got a lot of 
gothic. Um, I was reading a lot of Ella Montgomery over the pandemic because I lost myself in kid lit to like survive. <laughs> and I noticed like the dark gothic side of her stories and novels. Um, I have a friend that lives in Winnipeg. And of course, who's so famous from Winnipeg's Guy Madden. And they, like, he's the king of, you know, the king of weird Winnipeg. Right. And so I was like, he's, he exemplifies the essential strangeness of Canada. And I'm like, I think I think a lot about Dan Aykroyd because I research the history of spiritualism a lot, and I know that his family in Ontario they were you know he's a fifth generation spiritualist, and I'm just like I long to do more stuff about Canada. And right now I'm writing a uh, I'm co-writing a book about American ghost stories. It's called A Haunted History of Invisible Women, and it's about um, female centric ghost stories in American lore. And I'm like, God, I would love to do that for Canada, right? Like types of Canadian ghosts or something or ghosts of Canadian women or something. That would be fantastic. Yeah. I'm like, let's, and I keep writing to my sister, who's a U of T professor. I'm like, can we pitch this to some publishers in Toronto? Do you know anybody? And she's like, oh God, leave me alone. <laughs> I don't have time for this. But uh, I'm, I'm just like, yeah, let's, I want to go back to the the ghosts of the prairies, the ghosts of Ontario and the Maritimes and Quebec. I'm not going to list all the provinces, but, um, you know, I just, it's so, or the North, I mean, the endless, boundless, fascinating, mysterious North. My friend that lives in Winnipeg used to live in none of it. So I've heard a lot of uh, really interesting stuff. Oh, very stuff. cool. But it's just like, oh my goodness. And I don't know much about the West. I don't know much about Victoria or Vancouver or BC, but I want to know. I want to believe. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, this is you know, like New York. Fine. It's great. It's all good. But there's so much, there's so much to, I don't know, to revel in. And, and Canada has such a reputation as being a bit stuffy and straight laced and good, but it's weird. It really does. And one of the guests I want to have on the show is a journalist. Who I won't name just in case, because uh, there is a very good chance they're going to say no, but uh, <laughs> they represent what I think is a, is a really necessary view of Canada in that they, they view us as a, sort of an inherently flawed place, a good place, but a flawed place. And it, it very much goes mm -hmm. against that traditional image of Canada as, uh, hey, we're uh, all really nice, eh? And I, I think that's so mm -hmm. important because we have such a, such a broad identity here. And I think it's so important to, mm -hmm. to, to bring those stories out. Uh, I know myself, I recently uh, went back to see my family for the first time since, uh, since the pandemic started. And on our way back, we stopped in this little town called um, Chase. Sorry, no, um, well, it's gone right out of my head. doesn't matter. Stopped in a little town and there's this used bookstore, which I've always meant to stop into. It's, it's actually a, a junk shop, just a massive junk shop. And they were, they were closing. So I thought, well, there's now no better time. Went in. And in the back wall, in the section where they had all their books, there were all these old periodicals that had these stories from Canada's West, which I have never heard of before. And I guarantee you a lot of these things have not survived beyond these periodicals. You know, there's a story about a, a crazed bear called the Phantom of the Onuk. <laughs> yeah. There was a story actually from Victoria about uh, a famous Canadian author, uh, of, uh, famous of his time who spotted Cadbrosaurus, so say, the, uh, the cryptid which is said to live in Cadbro Bay just off Victoria. And again, I've wow. never seen that story anywhere else. I assume you bought this like bundle of I have a, right? I have a sizable stack of them here, yes. Phew, okay. <laughs> you were like, and then I just left. I was like, that's cool, then yeah, I left. <laughs> I don't know what 
happens to Canada? I think Canada used to have such a unique identity. And then the television era, everything got so like sublimated into American culture. And then like, we tried so hard to be Canadian that we like kind of, I don't know, it, it went a little too far. But like, I, I have all these wonderful memories of growing up reading a series of books set in Toronto in the 1930s. And it was just like, it's so specific. There's like all this stuff with specific names and locations. And it's like places that you can still go today. And I don't know. I feel like Canadiana has, you know, it's it's good periods and it's it's kind of fallow periods. But I feel like maybe it's just my insular Instagram bubble. But I feel like a lot more Canadian people now are taking pride in our ghost stories and in our like paranormal history. And, you know, they're trying to do more research there. But yeah, the the image of us is like this super nicey nice society. I mean, you could certainly, again, just to bring it back to Ella Montgomery, who I read a lot over the pandemic, you know, people out there were really rigid and strict in their social codes. And that certainly um, resulted in, in a very dark shadow world. And anyone who's read any biography of her knows that there was some dark stuff in her life, too. My husband and I often laugh because we will go to Buffalo and then go to Toronto. He's from Buffalo. I'm from Toronto. And we kind of laugh because Canadians have this reputation for being so super nice. But I think it's very it's very surface a lot of the time. And I mean, and nothing against Toronto. I love that city. And I, I love, you know, I love Canada. But the, the niceness is so brittle sometimes. That facade is so brittle. You want really, like, nice people? Go to Buffalo. Like, those people will bend over backwards for you. <laughs> <laughs> they're, like, the, they're, like, the most giving, selfless people. Like, Buffalo people are incredibly nice. And, um, yeah, Toronto people are like, I'll be nice to you for 35 seconds. And then you have to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's pretty, it's pretty funny. But anyway, now I'm going off on a tangent. So back, back I'll let you get oh, back no, to no, no. the interview questions. I'm all about tangents. I'm, like I said, the conversation is, is the important thing. And, and I was going to say with Canada, I think based on what little I know, I, I think we have been sort of the subject of very conscious myth-making. Oh, interesting. There's a book coming out in next year called For the Good of the Force. And it's by the journalist, mm. Gain, uh, pardon me, journalist Jane Gerster. And it's, it's basically an investigation into the history of the RCMP oh. and the way that they consciously created a narrative of them as the, the way they're seen by the U.S., by you know, countries outside of, of our own, where the, as the, you know, the, the, the red surge uh, on the horse and very plight and all that stuff, you know, that was all a very conscious invention. And obviously, I, I, don't, have the, I, I don't have the data to back this up, but I, I suspect that a lot of what we consider to be stereotypical Canadiana. I, I think that's conscious myth-making. I think the, the Tim Hortons, the hockey, I think that's all very, very intentional uh, because it allows you to, it allows you to, to ignore the reality of things. You, you say, well, Canadians are nice. Oh, okay, sure. Well, we don't have to look at the reservations which don't have water or we don't have to look at the fact mm. that, you know, during the 10 years of conservative rule, we, we very nearly signed over a huge number of our natural resources to foreign governments. You know, it just allows us to, mm. to kind of coast with this, this sort of lazy thinking. So again, uh, I w we'll, we'll take it back to Ghosts of New York here, but I, I do think there is a very conscious, uh, very conscious effort to do those things. Yeah. And like what I do at Burrows of the Dead is exactly try and like shake the mothballs out of that, that dusty thinking, like this myth making, these are the good people. These are the heroes. And you know, it's funny you mentioned the RCMP because I have vivid memories of my sister in like eighth grade making a video for her history project about the Northwest Mounted Police. 
And it was like this unbelievable piece of myth making. It could have been a D.W. Griffith movie. It had this like this was like her eighth grade video with like a homemade camcorder where she was like the Northwest Mounted Police going to like save a baby in the snow or something. And uh, yeah, like it could have starred Mary Pickford. Speaking of Canadian American crossovers, um, it, it, it was very dramatic. And it's like I didn't realize it at the time. I was like, wow, the Northwest Mounted Police, those guys were heroes. And now I'm like, wow, that was that sounds like propaganda. So, you know, Americans get a lot of, um, can I swear on this podcast? Absolutely. So Americans get a lot of shit, right? People are like, wow, what an evil empire you've moved to. How can you possibly live there? All empires are evil. Yeah. I'm like, you know, Canada's not perfect, right? Like (laughs) we've done some pretty shady stuff too. So, um, and to, to kind of on that note, bring it back to New York city ghosts, um, you know, the the indigenous question, speaking of bad things Canada yes. has done and America has done, you know, we talk a lot on our tours about what is the appropriate time to include indigenous stories because it can be very tricky on a ghost tour. That is a tradition that is very specific. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, you know, and in some sometimes very private. It depends who you talk to, but sometimes it's like, no, this is a private. I emailed um, people at the Lenape Center to consult. And they're like, no, this is private. We don't want it shared on a ghost tour. And I, one, I, can I say how much I respect the fact that you asked? Uh, because that is such a rare courtesy. You know, one of the things we've discovered on Ghost Story Guys, there is so much othering that happens with indigenous mm-hmm. stories. Yeah. And, and so little regard is given to where they're coming from and really whether or not they should be told. Yeah, that's, that's just the thing. And they often end up being Uh, Native stories often end up being such fodder for ghost tours in the States. And so you have to, yeah, I think it's only, (laughs) I think it's only polite to ask because it's like, how would I feel if my most um, intimate myths and, and, and family stories were being used as fodder on a ghost tour? How would that make me feel? So anytime I encounter somebody, whether it's a person, an individual, a museum, a group, someone who's like, alive, who has connections to the city, who's still here, who's still part of the fabric of New York, I'm always very careful to think about how would I feel if I was a descendant of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire survivor? How would I feel if, if this story was told on a ghost tour? So that's going to impact how I tell the story, or in some cases, if I tell the story. So we have some representation of Indigenous history on our Lower Manhattan tour, but when it comes to supernatural aspects, I'm like, I was told not to, and it's not my story to tell. It's not my decision to make. So out of respect, when people ask me, why don't you have more native stories on this tour? I said, well, we're, the conversation led to um, us being told not to. So we don't. And, and yeah, the way stories are used as fodder. And this is something I talked about on my talk for Miskatonic as well. In the American South, uh, slave narratives are used as fodder on ghost tours. And there's a whole book written by a Harvard professor about how difficult it is for her to wrap her head around that. It's, you know, it's, it's jaw-dropping for her, the kind of cavalier approach to a very profound history. So, you know, you, you don't want to be like the ghost tour guy that sucks the fun out of ghost tours. But at the same time, you're like, this is real. And this is someone's life and this is someone's death. And there are issues of respect here. And, and the issues of respect go all the way over to people who you don't agree with. I find there's a tendency now among 
you know, some younger people in, in my world, in my milieu, who are like very, very free with their criticism of certain historical figures. Right. And will feel comfortable saying things like Peter Stuyvesant was a garbage person or he was an awful, monstrous jerk. And I'm like, well, he was a human being who was nuanced and had many sides. And absolutely one of his sides was that he was a bigoted person and that he was a violent person. So, yes, you can talk about the toxic uh, bigotry of Peter Stuyvesant, but I, I find myself feeling very uncomfortable when people will just go ahead and and say these really flippant, um, kind of insulting things, standing next to his grave. You know? Oh, sure. <laughs> like, I mean, we, we could talk, I think, for hours about the death of nuance in modern discourse. That's, I, <laughs> sure. I, like, I, I'm wholeheartedly on the side of social justice. You know, I, I detest bullies and always have. But at the same time, I recognize, as you say, people, people have layers, people have many facets. And to dismiss them entirely, you're, you're really, you're not doing any more of a service to history than was being done by excluding anyone else. You know, we, in order to make mm-hmm. sense of what has come before and, and maybe to make a, a better future going forward, we, we need to do it with our eyes open. We need to see all parts of people so we can understand going forward, you know, what, what to look for, what, 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 to, what to want from people and to be able to deal with people who are not entirely what we want them to be because that's most people. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I like about the people who take my tours, because I find out of the general population, the segment of people who will take a ghost or quote unquote dark history tour are people who are open to nuance for the most part. They're open to understanding that people have multiple sides and that some of those sides are unpleasant and they're not afraid to look facts in the face and be like, this was a difficult thing that happened. Let's talk about this difficult thing that happened. They're, they don't shy away from that. They're, they're not unhappy if you mention something that brings down the vibe, you know, they're, they're, they're there for that. They're like, wow, we are okay contemplating this. And, and part of our metabolizing these difficult histories that still haunt us to this day, this is part of the process. And, and, you know, deaf positive people and the whole like adjacent world of like that kind of person, they're open to having difficult conversations and um, the kind of tourist and the kind of New Yorker who will put themselves deliberately in that position to have a difficult conversation and will pay for the privilege. Like that is a person who is curious for the most part, very open minded. And, and we can have some really productive conversations. So it's, it's nice to not be afraid like, oh, will I upset this client if I discuss something that's difficult? Um, and, and for the most part, our customers are so curious and intelligent and open. I feel very safe going to places that I might not, uh, you know, otherwise feel totally comfortable with in a group of strangers. Which is wonderful because, as I say, you know, we, we, we are at a pivotal point in history and we need to be able to conceptualize a, a better world than the one that we've sort of been, been, uh, been living in. And I think part of that is going to be able, is going to depend on our capacity to have these difficult conversations and to look at these things and say, okay, this is difficult and we need to, we need to understand and accept that it happened. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that's a big part of, you know, going back to what you said towards the beginning about history from the bottom. I think that's a massive part of this. And, and one of my big fears for the future is that we're going to, like a patient who's just about to have a breakthrough and then step back from it, we're going to sort of look and then just not quite be able to, to digest because having to reconceptualize our world is such a big task 
uh, we're just going to be, uh, we're not, we may not be able to handle it. That is, that is one of the things that I do sometimes worry about. Yeah. And I think that there is certainly a way that like discourse can be presented where it's like so progressive. It's like off-putting mm-hmm. kind of. And, and that's what I'm afraid will turn people off and, and cause reactions in the other direction. Um, you know, I want to be able to be comfortable on my tour saying, hey, so this is a thing that happened and it was very misogynistic um, or very racist or it was very destructive. And to have people like be like, yes, it totally was. And that historically is a thing that happened and not have anybody walk away in a huff because I called something racist or sexist. And get angry and then you know that person then suddenly like reossifies even more you know um what's the word i'm looking for like more obstinate than before like kind of digs in there yeah and and so you know i want to be able to just use terms and say that was misogynistic that was racist and not have people be upset be like it's just what it is that is the thing that happened or this was a group of people and they were all murdered um that's what happened. I'm sorry. The Titanic hit an iceberg. That's what <laughs> yeah. happened. You just have to be able to face the thing. Yeah. You d- accept it. It hit an iceberg. People died, <laughs> you know? So I, I'm, I'm, I'm just the messenger here. I'm telling you the fact and it's not my fault that this happened. And I don't want to, have you feel like I have a pro iceberg agenda (laughs) and I'm happy that people on the Titanic died. You know, I'm just telling you this and, and I'm sorry if you think I'm pedantic because I refer to a book that I read. It's funny too. Cause like, uh, on the Titanic tours, people will talk a lot about social class and they're always very eager to hear about how like the third class passengers were deliberately kept below decks and stuff like that. And they're like, tell me about how awful that was. And I'm like, well, honestly, it was just mass confusion. And it ended up that many third class passengers were stuck below decks because communication was terrible. It was all done in English. And you had the largest proportion of non-native English speaking people in third class. And so it just happened that way. It wasn't a deliberate thing. Like John Jacob Astor V wasn't up there on the top of the deck going, keep them down, you know, like. (laughs) So, so you know what I mean? Like there's two extremes here. There's the let's bury our head in the sand and accuse anyone um, who tries to talk about history of being um, a radical or whatever, you know, and there's, there's that end of the spectrum. And then there's the other end of the spectrum where it's like, wait a minute, are you telling me like all rich people aren't evil? Damn it. (laughs) You know, like that doesn't mesh with my worldview. So, you know. Then they accuse you of being one of them. Yeah. And I'm like, that's right. My tour guide fortune. (laughs) Like I Scrooge McDuck it every night (laughs) through my piles of gold with the tips you give me. So yeah, I mean, it's like, let's, let's find a middle ground where we can talk intelligently in a fact-based way. while also simultaneously acknowledging that facts are slippery because as we all know, recorded history is biased. It's written by a subsection of the population. New things emerge all the time. History changes every day. And something that I said on a tour five years ago, I might not say today because I'm learning every day. And so that's what I mean when I say, like, take what I told you on a tour as the tip of the iceberg, if you will. Take that and go and learn on your own, if you want to, about all the rest of the stuff that I didn't say today because I didn't have time or I didn't know it yet. Um, And question everything that I say. 
because I'm unearthing new facts every day. And maybe tomorrow I'll be smarter than I was today or I'll be wiser or you know what I mean? I'm a person and I grow and change and so do you and so does history. The only constant is that we need to have compassionate understanding and open-mindedness because everything else will change around us. So let's just be calm and open and talk as best we know about what we do know and acknowledge that there's still so much more out there. I couldn't agree more. And, And I think the greatest gift you can give someone is information that allows them to explore further on their own. And I think with this conversation, you certainly have done that. And I, I deeply, deeply appreciate it. Before we, before we wrap up, though, I, I want to, to, uh, to end on a, on a lighter note. And this is uh, perhaps very personal, so I will let you determine whether or not you want to answer. But a few days back, you tweeted, friends, I have seen certain goulash recipes online that include ground beef and elbow macaroni. Please do not do this. Do not desecrate my soul food. I have to know what's in goulash because Google keeps throwing macaroni and beef back at me. <laughs> Oh, I always knew I would be haunted by a tweet. Am I going to be canceled by the, the hamburger helper people for this? <laughs> yeah, um, the big hamburger lobby's okay. coming for you, and they're coming hard. They really are. Um, so my heritage on my mother's side is Czechoslovakian. So to me, goulash, which, by the way, I'm pretty sure the Czechs stole from the Hungarians. Like, <laughs> I think they made it first. So, um, so goulash is just like... Technically, I think the word just means a stew or a mix. It's like a gumbo in that sense. You know what I mean? It's like a mix of things. And it's like carrots, onions, tomatoes, some say potatoes, beef, some say paprika. Everybody has their own version of what it is and what it's supposed to be. And it depends on where you're from. And for me, my heritage is it's chunks of beef stewed in a brown sauce (laughs) served with knedliki dumplings. Or egg noodles. You can go either way. And my mother made dumplings. She made the Czech dumplings. And so goulash is like a bowl of brown. Now, if I Google it, because I don't remember the proportions of the ingredients in my head, and I see a recipe with elbow macaroni (laughs) and ground beef, I'm like, wow, that's not goulash. But I might be wrong because, like I said, I think the definition of goulash just means a mix, a stew. So if that's what it means to you, like that tweet's kind of tongue in cheek. If you feel passionately that in your world, goulash is ground beef and elbow macaroni, you go for it. That's your soul food. That's what you like to make. That's what you grew up thinking goulash was. I have no right to tell you what it is. In my precise (laughs) heritage, the definition means something else. And maybe somewhere out there is a Hungarian person laughing at me going, you idiot, you don't put carrots in goulash. Only the devil himself would put a carrot in a goulash, you monster. So I don't know. Um, but like, it just, those images were very disturbing to me. Because <laughs> I'm like, that's not what it's supposed to look like. And uh, for the record, I made a really good goulash. I made a massive pot of it. It disappeared within two days. It was amazing, and I really cooked the hell out of that stew. Um, so I just, I just want the world to know I did, I did a good one. Um, not all my goulashes turn out well, but that one did. I guess I was really passionate and fired up when I made it. But yeah, this is, I think this is a good example of like how history is in flux and how definitions are in flux. I think it's one thing, but what the hell do I know? I'm not a culinary historian. I'm just like one person with a... Too much time to tweet stupid things, I guess. <laughs> I, I, I like to say this is, or pardon me, I like to think this is the first salvo in the great goulash wars. So listeners, largely the truth at gmail.com, tell me, what's in your goulash? <laughs>
All right. And just before we go, you have a new book coming out in August of next year. And you mentioned it earlier, and I'd love to have you back on to talk about that when it does come out. But uh, can you just tell everyone where to, uh, what it's called again and where they can look for it? Yeah. So I have co-authored a book called A Haunted History of Invisible Women, True Stories of America's Ghosts. Uh, my co-authors are Liana Renee Heber and Elizabeth Carey Mahon. The book will be published by Kensington Press in, I think we pushed the date back to September 2022 because we figured ghost book fall makes sense. So that will be coming out soon. And we are actually just in the final editing stages now. We should have our arcs soon and start like publicizing that and everything in the new year. So look for announcements and updates and info and stuff um, probably around like March 2022. That's when we're going to start letting people know where to buy it and so on and so forth. Perfect. And where can everyone find you online? If you want to take a tour or yell at me about my terrible goulash recipes, <laughs> you can go to burrowsofthedead.com. Uh, that's burrows, like the five burrows of New York. Uh, burrowsofthedead.com. Um, all the tickets and info and everything is right there. And we're on Twitter at macabreNYC. We're on Instagram at burrowsofthedead. And um, if you're interested in the writing and stuff that I do, andreajanes.com is... Uh, the world's worst website, but it has the, it has the facts. Everything you need is right there. And I want to throw in my vote uh, for Andrea's book, Burrows of the Dead. I've been reading my way through it. It's a collection of short stories. It's really great stuff. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. My guest has been Andrea Janes, owner of Burrows of the Dead, New York's best ghost tour company. I'm just going to say it. Yes. Andrea, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This has been really fun. I appreciate it. And that's the ballgame. Don't forget to check the show notes for links to Burrows of the Dead website and all their social media. I also encourage you to keep an eye out on the website for Miskatonic Institute, just in case Andrea has another lecture coming up. As I mentioned during the show, that's where I first found her work. She was talking about dark tourism. And should she offer that lecture again, it's something you're not going to want to miss. Again, the link to Miskatonic Institute will be in the show notes. This isn't a sponsorship, although, hey, Miskatonic, if you're interested, you know where to find me. Here. Really, I, I don't go out much. But anyways, anyways, again, you'll find links to all that in the show notes. Thanks again to my guest, Andrea Janes, author and founder of Burrows of the Dead, New York City's best ghost tour company. Thanks also to Peter of Pizzanta Music for my fabulous theme song. You can find more from him at nightharvestrecordings.com or by searching for Pizzanta Music wherever you get your tunes. And finally, thank you for listening. Without you, there wouldn't be much point. All right. Until next time, I hope the night takes you to the same strange and wonderful places it takes me. And remember, if you're not sure what comes next, put a call out into the dark. You never know who's going to pick up. I'll see you next time. <laughs>